Now hear God's holy word from 2 Samuel chapter 9 as we continue our study, chapter by chapter through 2 Samuel. Hear now God's holy word. Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a certain servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him. And you shall bring in the harvest, that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we ask you today as we come into uh, this encounter with your word that you would clear our minds of all anxiety, of everything that would distract us, from your voice, that indeed you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit, and those words would strengthen us, they would encourage us, they would correct us, and that they would motivate us toward this kind of covenant faithfulness that David demonstrates to Mephibosheth. Father, we ask you to make us whole and and, and deliver us from all distraction, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, have you ever made a promise that you really regretted making. Sometimes promises, and oftentimes promises, are very easy to make, very hard to keep. It's possible in a moment of pure emotion to be swept up in a moment in such a way that you you have this really earnest desire to do something good. You really intend to not only make a promise, but keep a promise. But then when reality sets in later and the many, many, many challenges of keeping the promise come to light, when you no longer have the fervor that led to, you, led to you making the promise, you just lose all desire to keep it. Uh, we've all, I think, bought something on credit at some point in our lives. And when those payments start coming in, you start to have buyer's remorse. You start to regret uh, having made the promise to buy this thing and make the payments. You may have made a social commitment at some point in your life when they invite you to join them for something. 
and you say, yes, sure, I'd love to join you. But as the uh, appointment date comes closer and, and closer, you find yourself dreading it more and more. For some reason, you just, you don't want to do it. And so you try to come up with an excuse to, to weasel out of it. Is there anything I can find to, to get out of this commitment? Maybe you promised that you would help somebody, but then after promising to help them, you learn that there are all kinds of complicating details and then exasperated, you say, what did I get myself into? Is there any way I can get out of this? The true test of your character is whether you will keep your promises despite the challenges that come up. Will you do what you say or will you try to weasel out of your commitment, convincing yourself that it's really okay to not keep your word? Psalm 15 says, Yahweh, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Who are the kind of people who draw near to God? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. The upright man keeps his promise even when it hurts even when it's very uncomfortable to keep that promise, even when it's a great sacrifice to do so. That's the kind of man we see King David uh, as today, as God continues to build King David's kingdom. He's a man with whom God has covenanted to build him a house, and he's a man who himself keeps covenant. We're going to see this in various ways today. But we're at a big transition in the story of David's life. Today we're at the beginning of the third major section of David's story. The first section is the period that begins with his anointing by Samuel and goes all the way up to about 2 Samuel chapter 5, where he's anointed king over all the tribes of Israel. Uh, some Bible scholars call this the, the, the narrative of the rise of David. This is his rise from a shepherd boy to king over all the nation. And then we get that section that we've been studying for the last couple of weeks, the section uh, that is the general summary of all his wars, the collection of his spoils that he was gathering, God's covenant with him, the, the establishment of David's house. The theme of the section that we just finished is all about house building. God is building him a house and he's, he's establishing his house. And some of the details from that section, because it's a summary, some of the details stretch into the future. So we read about Solomon, and his name is mentioned there, but you see, chronologically, Solomon hasn't been born yet. That's a summary section. We read about the war uh, with the Ammonites and the Syrians, but we get more details later. The section we just wrapped up is a summary. And the whole theme there is God is building his house made of people, as I've already said this morning. He's making this house of people, and he sets up his king in the center and gathers all the people around him. The people are gathered around the sun, and this is later symbolized in the architecture of the temple. The temple shows us, yeah, these are, these are the people. We've, we've studied all that, and we've seen it. That is the theme of the second stage of David's story. Now in this third section that we're starting today, from here to the rest of the life of David, the central matter, the central question is, who is the son? Who is the king that is being set up in the middle? And are you going to have communion with that son or are you going to be an enemy to that son? Are you going to be, uh, are you going to rebel against him? Is there, are you going to stir up insurrection or are you going to submit to that son? Are you going to choose blessing or judgment, essentially, is, is the question. And then part of that question that's going to be worked out over the next several chapters is, who is the true heir of David who will build that temple? Is it Absalom? Is it Amnon? Is it Solomon? We see these questions come up. 
So we have all these, these uh, insurrections and rebellion and intrigue. Will the people join David or will they, will they strive against him? So that, that first big body material at the beginning of his life is the rise of David. Then we get a middle section summarizing the theme of house building throughout David's reign. And now with chapter nine, we're dropping back to near the beginning of David's reign. And we begin with a story of David keeping a promise that he made to Jonathan. It's been uh, anywhere from 15 to 20 years since David made a promise to Jonathan that he would show loving kindness to the house of Jonathan forever. And it may seem at this point in his life that David has done just about everything that has been expected of him to fulfill that promise. He didn't actively seek the fall of Saul's kingdom. David always showed kindness and honor to Saul, even when it was painful to do so. David was a man who swore to his own hurt, repeatedly uh, getting the bad end of the deal when it came to Saul. Even when it was personally detrimental to himself and to his family, David maintained covenant with Saul and respected him and submitted to him, even if it meant he had to get out of the country to honor him. But David never struck out at Saul, though he had the opportunity to do so. David patiently waited for the Lord. And David watched as Saul unraveled his own kingdom. Saul was his own worst enemy. And then when other people did strike at Saul and his family, David punished them severely. Now, at this point, we may ask, what more is required of David? Has he not done everything that he was supposed to do to honor his promise to Jonathan? Well, here we see that David takes his covenant with Jonathan so seriously that, that David cannot rest until he is sure that he has kept that covenant to the fullest extent of its interpretation, I, that I have done everything that I can do to make sure I've kept that promise. And so he opens this chapter with a question, is there anybody left in the house of Saul? Is there anybody out there that I may show him kindness? David is a godly man and God is uh, he, he expresses this covenant fidelity to his people. God asks this question of us. Is there, is there anything else I can do to bless you? Is there anything more I can do for you? Any way that I can show kindness to you? God pursues us with his covenant mercy. He pursues us with his love. So David, in asking this question, is demonstrating a different understanding of the word promise or the word covenant, or the word commitment than we do in our generation. In our, in our generation, you know, you have people all over who, who women, women and men both, who believe that, that marriage is superfluous, for example. That, that, you know, we love each other. I love you. You love me. We got love. What else do we need? We don't need no piece of paper, right, to say that we love each other. We don't need to go make a public commitment of our love. What's, it's fine. We just love each other, right? Why do, why do we need to get married? What they fail to realize is the safety and the security and the joy that comes from a covenant that is lived in, committed to, and fulfilled. True love is willing to bind itself. True love makes promises and keeps them. That's what true love is. And that's the kind of promise that David makes. True love willingly and gladly obligates itself so that others can stand in the security of that love. True love makes covenant and is faithful to covenant. And so David made this kind of promise to David and now he fulfills it because he takes promises and takes covenant so seriously. Now maybe nobody would have ever known that David made this promise. Jonathan is dead. Saul is dead. 
Nobody, maybe, maybe nobody was around when David and Jonathan had this conversation, but David remembers, and he doesn't use that as a loophole to not fulfill his promises. And he is uh, adamant on fulfilling this promise. So he asks, he says, is there anybody else that I can show mercy to in the house of Saul or Jonathan? Is there anybody else that I can show mercy to? And Saul's servant said, yes, well, there's one, Mephibosheth. We already met Mephibosheth back in chapter 4. Mephibosheth was a five-year-old boy who was being carried by his nursemaid and was dropped um, on her, on her uh, flight from her home. When, when the nursemaid of Mephibosheth found out that Saul and Jonathan and the other two sons of Saul were dead, her instant thought was, I know how this goes. Whoever is next in power is going to make sure that Saul's progeny is completely wiped out, that there are no more rivals to the throne. So what do you do? You get out of Dodge as quickly as possible. So she, she scoops up Mephibosheth and in her haste, she falls and breaks his legs. Of course, without modern medicine, if you're a child, you, you get an injury like this, you're going to limp for the rest of your life. So he was five when Saul and Jonathan were killed, which meant that he was about 13 years old when David was anointed king over all the tribes. And by this time, he's a young man because we find out at the end of the chapter that he has a son. This boy's name is Mephibosheth. It sounds a lot like his uncle's name, Ishbosheth. Remember him? Abner uh, set up Ishbosheth as king, as a rival to David. Ishbosheth means man of shame. Mephibosheth means one who scatters shame. So there's still a lot of shame associated with the house of Saul, and it's reflected in the names that we get here. When David finds Mephibosheth, he's living in low Debar. That's the name of the town. And the word Lodabar means literally nothing. It means no word. Lodabar was across the Jordan River from Jerusalem, near where Ishbosheth set up his short-lived kingdom. So Mephibosheth is living about as far away from David as you can get, posing no threat to David whatsoever. That makes sense. Again, given what happened to Ishbosheth and given what happened to Abner, you want to get as far away from that possible result as possible. You want to get away from uh, uh, anybody who would cause you harm. Uh, so Mephibosheth is a lame man. He's associated with shame. He's living in Nothingville. I mean, that's the name of the town he lives in. And, he, and now he gets this invitation to come up and join the king's house. David doesn't simply send him allowance. Once he finds out, he says, oh, okay, well, maybe we'll just set up, you know, like an auto draft and just send him money every month and just make sure he's taken care of. No, David is not content with that. He makes sure that Mephibosheth comes into his own house and is treated like one of his own sons. Mephibosheth ate at David's table for the rest of his life. Well, what's going on here? Why does David bring Mephibosheth into his house? One question, one answer to this might be, well, it makes sense for David to do this because uh, now David can keep an eye on him. If there's any little fires of Saul uh, loyalty, uh, out there, maybe keeping Mephibosheth closest to him, that would, that would help you put out those fires. It kind of unites the house of David and Jonathan to diminish any remaining controversy. But that's not the central lesson here. Maybe that was true, but that's not the central lesson. The main point is that this is an offer of salvation from the house of David to the house of Saul. The only hope 
for the remnant of, of the house of Saul is to be at peace with David. You've got to get up and leave the table of Saul and sit at the table of David, just as you and I. The only hope that you and I have is to get up from the table of Adam and sit down at the table of Jesus to leave the house of Adam and to join the house of the greater David. And that's the message of this section. The whole section is, are you going to love God's son? Are you going to love the king that he has set in the center? God has established his king, and now he's gathering his people around him, building his house. So everyone must join David. If this is the king that God has covenanted with, you must join him to be saved from judgment and to have life. In particular, Saul's house must join David because Saul's house is under judgment. It's been very clear so far that Saul's house is being judged. So this is an offer of salvation to Mephibosheth and he takes it. He falls down on his face before David and says, why would you show such love to me? What am I? I'm a dead dog. I'm nothing. I live in nothingville. I'm nobody. My name means uh, one who scatters shame. There's nothing attractive about me. There's nothing here to bring to you. And yet David sets him at his his table, so that uh, so that he can he can join and and benefit from the blessings of God through David. This text won't let us forget that Mephibosheth is lame in both feet. It mentions it repeatedly. It mentioned it back in chapter four, and then a couple of more times in chapter nine. In fact, that's the last phrase of the chapter. Right? He was lame in both feet. Don't forget that. It's like the author is saying, "I don't want you to forget this. Don't miss this. He was lame in both feet." And we say, "Yeah, yeah." We get it. No, no, no. I want you to be sure you get this. He was lame in both feet. Why? Why does it keep reminding us of this? Well, there's another important man in the Bible who walks with a limp, right? Jacob. Jacob walked with a limp. Why did Jacob walk with a limp? Well, Jacob was made lame as a result of his wrestling with God when his name, when Jacob's name was changed to Israel, when God made his covenant with him, uh, he, he touched the socket of his hip and now he limps. Uh, and thus Israel is always the nation that limps to victory. They never win a victory in their own strength, with their own military might or their own power. God is fighting for them. Israel is the nation that limps to victory. And so Israel needs to, like Mephibosheth, join themselves to David, to eat from David's table, so to speak. Be loyal to the king that God has set up. Therein lies their deliverance. Therein lies their salvation. They've been united to Adam. They've been united to Saul, but they now need to get up from the table and join the table of David. They need to leave Adam's house and join the table of David and his greater son, Jesus. So Mephibosheth, the reason the text won't let us forget this is Mephibosheth stands in for all of Israel here. All of Israel, they're the nation that limps. Now here's the man who limps. And, and we got another Jacob with a limp. And he shows the way of faithfulness for all of Israel. All of Israel needs to fall down on their face and say, I'm nothing and join the king and unite themselves to the king. Well, David has shown his loving kindness to the remainder of Saul and Jonathan's house. And now he's going to show his loving kindness to a foreign king. As he does this, it kicks off the history of the Ammonite war that's going to take up the next several chapters. This is a grueling war that drags on and drags on, and it takes up a big chunk of David's reign. The gist, and I'll quickly outline this war so that you can see the outline of where we're headed, is that David offers peace to the Ammonites. And we'll get into a little bit of what that means and how he did that. But they showed him great uh, shame and humiliation and rejection when he offers them peace. 
He considers that an act of war. So he marches out to take care of the Ammonites, but the Ammonites in the meantime, they align with the Syrians. Now David has to fight a, front, a, a war on two fronts. He has to fight the Syrians. He's got to fight the Ammonites. They take care of the Syrians. They turn around to take care of the Ammonites, but David doesn't go to the battle, right? David doesn't go fight the Ammonites. He lays around at home. He sends Joab in his place. And that's when we get that tragic story of Bathsheba when David doesn't go out to fight the Ammonites. We deal with that after that. David goes out, defeats the Ammonites, but, but that bleeds over into another conflict with the Edomites. Have you got it all straight? So this is a long, grueling, difficult, exhausting, arduous war that's just going to consume the next several chapters and consume a lot of David's life. But this morning, we're just going to read the very beginning from chapter, we'll get into chapter 10 and see how it starts. Chapter 10, verse 1. It happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died, and Hanan his son reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. Oh, what does that sound like? David wants to show kindness to the son of Jonathan, just as Jonathan showed kindness to him. David pursues people in loving kindness. David pursues people with mercy. And so now Nahash has died, the king of the Ammonites, and Hanan his son is grieving, and so David wants to show loving kindness to Hanan his son. You all remember Nahash the Ammonite, right? He was the first threat that Saul dealt with when Saul became king. Uh, Nahash the Ammonite was the guy who came up to the city of Jabesh Gilead and said, hey, we'll be friends as long as you let me poke out your right eye, and we'll be fine with that. Well, of course, uh, Saul comes heroically to, the, uh, to, to deliver the, the, the Jabesh Gileadites and sends Nahash running. Well, in the meantime, when, when David was on the outs with Saul, everyone who hated Saul made alliances with David and was nice to him. That's what you do. If you want to cause trouble in another country, you give support and you give help to insurrectionists. You, you don't care who wins. You just want everybody to tear each other up and, and make sure the nation stays weak. So these outside forces don't really like David. They're, they're not really big on David. They just want to keep Israel unstable and they keep pouring fuel on the fire. So, so that's why the Philistines were so nice to David when David was on the run from Saul, right? They just want to create conflict. Now when David becomes king, the Philistines are ready to go to war. Well, so Nahash the Ammonite was nice to David because they both had a conflict with Saul. But now that Nahash is dead, David decides, well, are we going to keep these good uh, diplomatic relations going or are we going to have trouble? So David decides he wants to show kindness, the same thing he shows to Mephibosheth. Ultimately, what David is offering is salvation to the Ammonites. That's what he's offering. Join yourself to us. Join yourself to our God and you will have peace. You'll receive the blessings of the covenant. You will have life the way that we have life. It, it all goes back to the promise God made to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. So if, so if we can have these nations blessing us and living in communion and fellowship with us, uh, again, these are not Canaanite people. These are Ammonites. If, if we can do that, then that's the salvation of these kingdoms. Remember also the Ammonites are distant cousins of Israel. Lot had two sons. Lot had Moab. We've already dealt a little bit with the Moabites. And he had Ammon. The Ammonites are descendants of Lot. And so David sends out evangelistic ambassadors of peace to Israel's neighbors and their closest cousins and their closest relatives in order to bring them into covenant with the throne that has been established. Come join the king. 
Now, hearing about the death of Nahash, David sends his servants to Hanan, the son of Nahash, likely bearing gifts. It doesn't say what, what he took with him. I don't know if they took, you know, green bean casserole. I don't know. What do you take in the ancient world when somebody has passed away? Maybe flowers or, you know, gold or treasures or something. But they send something to comfort the prince. But, but he ain't having it. Um, so in the middle of verse 2, so David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanan their lord, do you think that David really honors your father because he sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? It might have gone something like this. Hanan's counselors say, remember what happened when David took over Israel? Uh, remember what happened to Ishbosheth and Abner? They both ended up dead. This David is a bad dude. You don't want to trust him. You don't want anything to do with him. Everywhere he goes, people die. And now he's sending these men here to console you, but you know what they're really here to do. They're here to spy you out and spy out your kingdom so that they can overthrow it. So when these messengers, when these ambassadors come, they don't believe them. They don't believe David. And this is what happens all the time. When the message of peace is extended, when the gospel goes out, you can either believe the son or you can believe the serpent. You can either believe Jesus or you can believe the accuser. And they chose poorly. They could have said, well, thanks, but no thanks. And they could have backed up and they could have beefed up their security. But Hanan decides to do something a little more radical. You know, these, these Ammonites are all about humiliation, about, you know, poking out your right eye if you, if you enter covenant with us. They're all about insult. And so he decides to insult David's men. Verse 4, Therefore Hanan took David's servants, shaved off half their beards, cut off half their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. He cuts off half their beard and cuts off half their garments from the waist down so that all they have is, you know, just the top part, you know, like Pooh Bear or por Porky Pig, right? You just, uh, I was watching cartoons with my son yesterday. I said, why do all the cartoon characters, they only, they only have a shirt. They're never wearing pants. It's a, little, it's a little disturbing, honestly, if you ask me. But that's what they do. He, he, they turn him into, you know, uh, Porky Pig, and they send him out of the city with mockery. This would have been very emasculating and humiliating. They would have had to run through the city that way on their way back to David. And this might have been the Ammonites way of saying, you know what, you're not really mourning. You didn't shave your heads. You didn't rend your garments. Here, let us do that for you. Let's, let's show you what this looks like. Cutting, cutting a man's garment is an assault on his office. Like when David cut David's, uh, I'm sorry, when David cut Saul's robe. This isn't just personal shame or insult. This is an assault on their royal uniforms. This is an assault of the symbols of their country, which makes this an act of war. Verse five, when they told David, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. This is really interesting. Why does he tell them to wait at Jericho? There is no Jericho at this point in history. Jericho wasn't rebuilt until about a century later when Ahab and the guys ignored the curse that was on Jericho. Uh, so it must mean that David sent them to the area where Jericho used to be. Well, well why is that? Well, that, there's your puzzle for this week. Y'all help me out on the last puzzle. Why does he send them to Jericho? It may just be that Jericho was a deserted place where no one was going to see them in their shame, where they could grow out their beards um, and wait to come back. But, but he sends his men 
kind of in isolation and exile until their beards grow back and they can come back uh, and serve him. Verse 6, when the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Maaka, 1,000 men, and from Ishtob, 12,000 men. Ammon realizes suddenly that they just bit off a big chunk of trouble in this. And so they start allying with the Syrians and other mercenaries. Together they get five armies allied and prepare to go to war with Israel. See, the question in play here is whether the nations are going to submit to God's king, the son, or whether they're going to cause him to hate them. Psalm 2, what Psalm 2 says? It says, kiss the son lest he be angry. Well, it looks like they've made the son angry and vengeance is about to be brought against them. Verse 7, now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah, Beth Rehob, Ishtab, and Maacah were by themselves in the field. According to God's law in Deuteronomy chapter 20, when you come up to an enemy city, you first offer terms of peace. And if they do not accept it, well, then you can lay siege to it. When Joab, uh, David's general, and the men come up to the city of Ammon, the Ammonites are waiting for them. They're already arrayed in, in battle at the entrance to the city. They're not interested in talking about peace. Not only that, but they have the Syrians and the others waiting in a field to ambush the Israelites so that they can kind of sandwich them in between. Verse 9. When Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians and the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. Then he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God that uh, and may Yahweh do what is good in his sight." Well, boy, you've heard the phrase, you know, a blind pig will find an acorn every once in a while. And, and Joab, wow, son, I didn't know you had it in you. Finally, a little bit of a theology that comes out of the mouth of Joab. He's a hardened, crusty veteran who spilled a lot of blood. And now he's saying something that's really kind of sound and helpful. He's saying, hey, guys, we're in a tight spot here. This is a mess. All we can do is stand and be faithful. And what we've got to do is fight. And, we've, we're, and the Lord is going to do whatever he thinks is good. If he wants us to win, we'll win. If he wants us to fail, we'll fail. Either way, fight and leave the outcome to the Lord. And so Joab is really displaying trust in the Lord and acknowledging that the outcome always belongs to Yahweh. So he puts a company of men under the leadership of his brother to fight the Ammonites at the city, and he takes most of his skilled men to go fight the Syrians. And he says, if things get too hot over here, you come help me. And if things get too hot over there, then I will send men to come help you. Verse 13. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. When the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. Uh, well, it turned out to be a whole lot of nothing after all of this. There's not much of a fight. The Syrians run away when they see Israel coming. And, and then the resolve of the Ammonites is softened when they see the Syrians running. And the rest of the mercenaries run off too. The king of the Syrians is embarrassed and he, he regroups and tries to give it another go. Verse 15. 
When the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. Then Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river, and they came to Helam. And Shobach, the uh, commander of Hadadezer's army, went before them. When it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, and came to Helam. And the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with him. Then the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians and struck Shobach, the commander of the army, who died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help with the people of Ammon anymore. This wasn't the Syrians' uh, fight to begin with. And now he's gotten wrapped up into it. And so the Syrians attacked Israel. Israel, led by David, they completely rout the Syrians. They kill the commander of the army, 700 charioteers, 40,000 horsemen. And now Syria makes peace with Israel. That last sentence of the chapter is so funny. Well, maybe we won't mess with Israel anymore after this. That wraps up the Syrian threat. But that's only the first installment in the Ammonite War. The next chapter is where we see when it's time to go back out to battle, David stays at home and he doesn't join the army of God against the Ammonites. Well, this all got started when the Ammonites were afraid of Israel starting a war with them. They were overtaken by paranoia and they were foolishly led by that paranoia into a war that they lost. They should have just taken the bean casserole and the flowers and said, thank you, and, and let that be done with it. Let it be over. This, this whole episode reminds me of Psalm 120. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Uh, of course, that's not only a description of what happens to David here. David extends uh, invitations of peace, but they're for war. But, but when David's son Jesus comes offering terms of peace, extending the opportunity for communion and fellowship with God, when he speaks peace, they're for war. He gets, he gets crucified because they don't want anything to do with him. They humiliate him and they shame him. They pluck out his beard. They tear his robe. It's the very same kind of humiliation that they show Jesus. And that's how, and that's why we can expect a significant segment of the world of unbelief to respond to us as well. We, we always get real surprised when people don't want what we're offering them and they respond with hatred or they respond with verbal abuse. You've told me stories. You've, you've tried to share Jesus with people and, and they cuss at you. They abuse you. They humiliate you. We know what we're offering them because we've all had it and we all experienced. They don't, they don't know exactly what we're offering them. And what we're saying is come sit down and eat with Jesus because we want you to have life. We want you to live. We want you to have peace with God and peace with yourself and peace with other men. That's what we want. But it doesn't matter how kind you are. It doesn't matter how sweet the offer is, how, how nice the invitation is. In fact, you've seen with some, the more reasonable you are, and the more gentle you are, it only provokes them and enrages them further. There's nothing rational about unbelief. It's not like you can argue them out of it. It's not like you can show them some proof and all of a sudden the light will come on. When you are for peace, they are for war. This call of peace, this, this call of communion enrages the powers of darkness and their allies, and they muster their forces to respond. Uh, understand this and always know this. When the forces of darkness and the forces of unbelief fight, 
they're always setting themselves up for a loss. Every single time. That's what happens here. They say, oh, you're going you're gonna to be nice to us. You ain't going to be nice to us. We're going to show you nice. And they get all the armies together and they get their head handed to them. When the armies and forces of unbelief muster for the fight, they are not going to win. That's the first step in their defeat. The first step in their defeat is their gathering for war. You and I, we always get terrified. We think that evil's going to win. We think, well, maybe, maybe the devil's going to put some points on the board this time. But they never win. They get stirred up. They muster up a big batch of overconfidence. They attack, and they end up getting plundered. David plunders the strong man's house. This is the same Syrian Hanadezer that we get all the bronze from for the temple that we saw a couple of weeks ago. Jesus offers peace. The forces of hell are provoked. They launch their assault and they lose. Jesus plunders the strong man's house. They have no victory. They have no future. People of God, do not despair. Have courage. Show loving kindness. Don't let, I wonder if these two episodes were, were reversed. If he tried to show Hanan love first and it was rejected, would David have then turned around and tried to show love to, to Mephibosheth? He shows Mephibosheth love first. He says, well, that went pretty good. Let me try that again. And it goes badly. If those were reversed, I wonder how that would end up. Don't let the evil, wicked, embarrassing response of some people sour you to extending loving kindness over and over and over and pursuing people in love. Show loving kindness. Keep covenant. Keep your promises. Extend mercy to the pagan and the unbeliever and the exile in his sorrow and loneliness and shame like Mephibosheth. And if and when he is stirred to anger, don't be surprised. That just means he's about to be plundered one way or the other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your servant David, and we thank you for how he points us to Jesus. Father, make us men and women of covenant faithfulness who pursue others with your loving kindness. Father, strengthen us in this by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.